This morning we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse, verses 7 through 18. Verses 7 through 18. It's a glorious text, okay? And uh, it honestly really is a glorious text. Um, and so if you have your Bible and you're able, will you stand for the reading of God's Word? But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which, was, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, people like Paul, the apostles, the the men that you use to write this book for us, to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, Father, to help us to uh, know you and to know your character and to know about your son. Father, we thank you for this word. May it open up to us today as we open it up. May it open up to our hearts and to our minds. And Father, use it to bring about that transformation that's talked about here in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. You know, we look at this text, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of the, his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Look at that whole text and this whole book, and it really is an apologetic or a defense of the Apostle Paul's faith. It's a defense of his faith, it's a defense of his ministry, it's a defense of his calling or his apostleship, and so the whole thing is a defense, and yet in this one, it's, it's a, it, it's, he's comparing his ministry, the ministry that he has, and honestly, the ministry that you have and the ministry that I have, to the ministry of Moses in the wilderness on Mount Sinai. Um, if the ministry of death, now how is that, uh, and, and what is he talking about here in this ministry of death? Well, in order to, to talk about that and to understand it, we need to go and read chapters 19 through 34 in Exodus. And so we're going to take a look at some of that. We're not going to read the whole thing. Um, but and, and part of it is because uh, I think chapters 21 through 31 are pretty much the laws that God has given to his people. But if we see chapter 19 in Exodus, we see Moses and his people at Mount Sinai. Moses going up to receive the law, to spend time with God. 
Uh, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. This is the giving of the law, okay? And this is what he's talking about when he's talking about the tablets of stone and the old uh, ministry, the, uh, the ministry of death. This is what he's talking about. And let them be ready for the third day, and you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Can you imagine being there for that? Can you imagine being there and your leader, Moses, who led you out of Egypt, is going up to the top of this mountain and he has told you, set bounds all around. Don't go past this limitation. And I've, many of you know, or I've, I've shared it, that I see that also as kind of a, um, the, the walls that were around the temple. You remember that, that there were uh, limitations on where the non-Jews could go, okay? They could come up to this wall, but they couldn't go into any closer. And if they did, there were signs around some of those that said, listen, it's on your own death. You'll be shot with arrows or you'll be stoned. And that's what this was commanded. Um, if they come up here, um, not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so around the temple, they had these walls. The, the Gentiles couldn't come inside that wall. Everybody else, every Jew could come inside that wall, but then there were more walls. And those who had... Um, uh, Infirmities couldn't go past a certain wall. Women couldn't go a certain place. Men couldn't go into a certain place. And then there was the Holy of Holies, okay? And that's where the high priest once a year met God and made the sacrifices for the people. Moses, at this point, was, in my view, going into the Holy of Holies. He was standing before the throne of grace, boldly going into the, into the, uh, into the presence of God. So on the third day in the morning, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. The sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. They stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. When the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Think about how glorious that was. Think about the scene and how, that, I mean, how amazing that whole picture was. And the people witnessed the thundering and the lightning, the flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. And then he begins to give Moses the Ten Commandments. But not just the Ten Commandments, because it's, it's, it's here at the end of chapter 20, verse 22 that I just read to you. And the law concerning servants begins there, the law of the altar. And, and it goes all the way to chapter 31, where God is giving Moses um, the law. So for 40 days, he was up on the mountain. He comes down from the mountain, and guess what? He um, has the, t the two tablets uh, when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God, tablets of stone that had the laws on them, all of these laws um, for in my Bible from page 66 all the way to 76, 10 pages, okay, small font of 
laws concerning all of the things that the Hebrew people needed to do in order to be like God, in order to be perfect, he had to obey all of those laws. In order to be able to stand before God, in order to be righteous before him, they had to obey all of those laws. And what we know from Scripture and from our own lives is that, guess what? We can't. The Hebrews couldn't obey all of those laws. Not even the Apostle Paul could obey all of those laws, which is probably part of the reason why he thinks that and believes that and knows that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the new covenant is so much more glorious than the old covenant, the covenant of the law or the covenant of the ministry of death. Because now, guess what? He's free. Not to do all of those things, but he's free from worrying about them, free from fretting about them. That's like that story I told about me driving down the interstate, okay? And I'm going, there's a police officer. And I'm checking my speed, making sure I've got my... I use my cruise control, because if I don't, I'm losing $75, okay? My insurance is going to go up. I'm going to have to take a class so I can continue driving a bus. So the cruise control is my good friend. And I go, well, there's a police officer. Watch, he's going to get this guy. Here he goes. Kathy doesn't have to worry about that or even think about that. (laughs) She's never going to go over the speed limit. She's free. Why? She doesn't worry about the laws because she behaves and obeys it so well. Okay, somebody like me has got to use the cruise control or I'm worried. And so the Apostle Paul knew that in Christ there's freedom from all of that. The Spirit of God works in him and keeps on uh, working in him to help him so that, guess what? He has the ability to obey those laws, but he also doesn't have to worry about them because the righteousness of Christ lives in him. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was written of God, was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the noise of, of, of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the shout of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets of, out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Chapter 34, and the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So Ray, be ready in the morning and come up in the mountain in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to to me there on top of the mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first one. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Remember, the first ones were broken, but it's the tablets of stone. This is what we're trying to get to. And also to the glory that we see with Moses that's fading. Now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth. Then he said, Behold, I make a covenant. This is God speaking. I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth. We'll talk about that covenant later. So in verse 29, so now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, when the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Because of the great glory of God there on on Mount Sinai, okay? Moses, when he came down, had, I don't know what you want to say, had... um, the glory was on him because of God being present there that his face reflected the glory of God, okay? 
And when he came down from the mountain, it, it, the, the people would see that glory of God reflected in the face of Moses. Okay? And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. For whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever God had commanded. And so when Moses, or when uh, the Apostle Paul writes about this ministry of death, that's what he's talking about, that law. And like I said, there are um, 10 chapters from uh, Exodus 21 to Exodus 31 of all of those laws. You can go through and read those and be glad you don't have to worry about them, okay? Because there's so many there that you can't hardly, you can't even remember them probably. And so he says, this is a ministry of death. Now the question is, why is this, why are these laws a ministry of death? Well, there are several reasons, okay? One of the reasons particularly is if you expect something to save you and you, you bet your life on it and it doesn't, then it's going to kill you. It's a ministry of death. And the, the Hebrew people, and even to this day, they, they stake their life on this, okay? And a lot of people stake their life on all of the sacrifices and the offerings that they have to make. I'm just going to, you know, I mean, particularly ancient uh, religions, they would offer sacrifices constantly. They would take um, animals and, and uh, um, uh, harvest rice and beans and whatever, and they would offer that. They would take uh, even human beings and children and offer them to their God in hopes that that would make them, um, make them acceptable to their God. And we all know that that doesn't work. We all know that those sacrifices and those offerings are not what make us acceptable to God. There is one offering, one sacrifice that has been made that makes us acceptable to God, and that is the offering of Jesus Christ that he gave himself as the high priest offering himself and as the Lamb of God who gave himself as that offering. He both was the offering and the one who gave the offering. And we know that all those others don't do us any good. And he says here, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that, the, and it was, it was amazing, it was, it was a sight to be there, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. His face was shining with the glory of God, the reflection of the glory of God, which glory was passing away. But after a while, he didn't have to wear that veil anymore because guess what? That glory in him faded, all right? Um, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Think about that. I mean, you just think about it in a, in a, in a very simple way. Um, the idea that, uh, what did Jesus say? He said, I have to go away. If I don't go away, I can't send you the Spirit. Okay, so Jesus was in one place with his disciples, but when he went away, he could send his spirit to dwell in every single follower of Christ that ever lived and that ever will live on this earth. You and me at the same time, all of us at the same time. How, I mean, you think about that, and also, there's so much more to think about here, and I probably won't hit it all. Also, he can live in you at the same time he lives in me. He can convict you of sin and righteousness at the same time he's convicting me of sin and righteousness. It's, and, and none of that can happen uh, with the law. And not only that, not only that, what else does the law not do? I mean, if I go out on the highway and I don't set my cruise control and I want to do 80 miles an hour in a 65 or a 70, guess what? I can do that. The law doesn't stop me from doing that, does it? It doesn't prevent me from doing that. And it doesn't give me life. But the Spirit of God dwelling in us, guess what? He will convict us of sin and righteousness and prevent us from doing that. The law can't stop us. We might have to face the consequences of our actions if we do those, but it will not stop us. It doesn't change our heart. 
the Spirit of God dwelling in us does. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, which it did, that ministry of condemnation, you know the law condemns you? Uh, see if I can find that. Um, the law condemns us. I think it's in Romans 8, 1 through 4. You remember what Paul said in 8? Here it is, yes. Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See that? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus was made, has made me free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit of God dwelling in you has made you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, what could the law not do? First of all, it couldn't make you obey the law. It couldn't make you like God. It couldn't make you behave. It couldn't make you righteous. It also could not give you life. So for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Listen to this. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It was fulfilled in us through the blood of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. It was not fulfilled in us through obeying a law or being obedient to the law. It was fulfilled in us through what Jesus Christ did and the Spirit of God beginning to dwell in us. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in that respect because of the glory that excels. Think about this. Just a real quick idea here. Um, uh, have any of you ever been up here when a spotlight shines down on your face? Anybody? I don't like them because I can't see anything, you know? These lights that you have here are nothing compared to a spotlight shining in your face. And, and, and even if that spotlight comes on at the same time they're on, okay? You think about a lamp or a light that you turn on. How many of you turn your lights on at night so you can see, right? I turn on porch lights for the boys when they're coming home to make sure they can see. You just read in the dark? Yeah? You turn them on in the morning when you get up. If you get up before the sun comes up, guess what? Pretty soon the sun comes up, you turn the lights off. You don't need them anymore because their glory has faded. Their glory is not as much as the glory of that sun that you see coming up in the morning. The same idea here. The glory of the Old Testament law, the glory of, of, um, of the Hebraic law, the Mosaic law, is nothing compared to the glory of the ministry of the Spirit living in us. Of the ministry, and then, by the way, there are the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and the New Covenant, Jesus Christ. So the glory of the Old Covenant is nothing compared to the New Covenant. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Moses was just a man. Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Think about the difference between the glory of those two. So... Um, so then, and, and I love all of this because um, there's another difference between the old and the new covenant. Well, the old covenant was temporal. Temporal means temporary. It was going to pass away. The new covenant, guess what? This gives us another hint as to the glory of the new covenant. The new covenant is not temporary. There's nothing, nothing else that needs to be done since Jesus Christ did it all. It's eternal. Okay? It's finished. In fact, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, guess what? It was finished. And after that, he ascended into heaven. And you know what he did? He sat down at the right hand of God. You know why he sat down at the right hand of God? Because all the sacrifices that ever needed to be made were made himself. 
No other sacrifice needed to be made except for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You see, when the priests of the Old Testament were offering sacrifices, okay, when the people would bring their sacrifices, they would offer sacrifices all throughout the day. They wouldn't sit down until they were finished. And the scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for you and for me. Why is he sitting? Because he's finished. Doesn't have to offer any more sacrifices. It's all done, okay? I want you to, um, you might not want to go or or turn there, but I'm going to turn to Hebrews chapter 5, okay? And we're going to get through this text, I promise, okay? But there's so many others that relate that I absolutely um, love that I just got to go there. Hebrews chapter 5. And I'll read it fast, but you can write them down or get them later if you want to, 1 through 9. I won't read all of those. I'll skip a couple. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Every high priest taken from man is subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. So those high priests who would come and offer sacrifices for the sins of the people had to offer them first for himself. Jesus didn't have to do that. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, God who said to him, Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Six, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Pretty cool, huh? Jesus Christ. The other priest couldn't do that. The other priest couldn't become the author of eternal salvation to those who obeyed him or to those who obeyed the law. And then we go to... um, Hebrews 7, 11 through 19, uh, a new priesthood. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, remember it's not, right? Perfection is not through the Levitical priesthood. It's not through the sacrifices that they offered. If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? So if that one was good enough, the Old Testament law and all the sacrifices, if they really did what the people wanted and hoped for them to do, if they really offered them eternal life and salvation and washed away all their sins, then guess what? There wouldn't be a need for another one, would there? There would be no need for Jesus Christ to become that high priest and that perfect sacrifice that washed away our sins. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That bringing in of that better hope is Jesus Christ, the one who brings to us the new covenant in his blood, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. Isn't that something? Another high priest, another high priest, another high priest. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Jesus Christ, eternal in the heavens. The eternal priest, never having to be replaced. Guess why? Because he is eternal in the heavens. Therefore, he is also able to save like this. I love this. You know what's coming next? The word that's coming next to the what? Anybody? He is also able to save to the uttermost. Has anybody ever been saved to the uttermost? I mean, seriously, think about that word. That's a cool word. He is able to save to the uttermost. If you're saved to the uttermost, guess what? You don't have to worry about it anymore. Because Jesus Christ is that one priest, high priest, who made the sacrifice. He is the one sacrifice that gave himself, and he has saved you and me and all who follow him to the uttermost. No chance of being unsaved. No chance of losing that. He's got you. He's going to hold you. He's going to keep you. He saves you to the uttermost. 
Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself, that once for all, forever sacrifice. And then finally, finally, as far as this is concerned, verses 1 and 2 and 7 through 10. Now, this is the main point. We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. Doesn't have to offer sacrifices again and again and again and again. Offered himself once. That was enough because he was perfect and sinless, and he lives forever. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So what that tells me is that first covenant was not faultless. It had faults. It could not do what the people thought it could do or wanted it to do. It could not save them from their sin. It could not make them righteous before God. Okay? There would have been... No place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. A new covenant. Get that? A new covenant, okay? That covenant, that new covenant, is the covenant in Christ's blood, his death, his burial, his resurrection, okay? His, his perfect sacrifice. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart and write them on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. How would he put their laws in their heart? They had the law on paper or on papyrus or on uh, animal skins, but now, and on stone, and now, guess what? They're not on stone. And they might be, but they're also on their hearts. Only because of the fact that Jesus died, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, can this be a truth? Can this happen? And so, so the new covenant the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Pretty amazing, pretty glorious. And that old covenant was pretty glorious too, to stand there and watch all that happen. But guess what? This one is way better because, because it is eternal, because it lasts forever, because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, offered himself up as a propitiation for our sins. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing. For what is passing away was glorious, and what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, listen to this. Now, let me ask you a question. This, uh, this is great. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Not like Moses, or unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use boldness, great boldness of speech. Think about that. Football's happening, baseball's finishing up, and if you are an announcer, and I'll go with baseball, I know it better and probably like it more, can't get hurt as much. See, when I was uh, about to be a freshman in high school, I was thinking about trying out for football. Seriously, I was like an idiot, um, because I was like, you know, five foot four and 112 pounds. And so the cross-country coach saw me, and he said, you gonna, no, you'll get smashed, forget it, you should run cross-country. And so there begins my love of running. And so I'm not really that, you know, on football, but baseball. Down in the final innings, you got two outs, three men on, teams down by four. And guess what? The home team announcer's up. He's talking. And, and the, 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 the hero, the home run hitter comes up. Is he going to go, oh, we got our 
We've got a good guy up coming to bat. Let's see what he can do. He's going to be, no, he's not going to be like that. He's going to have some excitement to his voice when he talks about this. He's got some boldness that this guy possibly can knock a couple runs in or may even hit a grand slam and win the game for them. And the Apostle Paul says, therefore, since we have such hope, such hope of what? Such hope of a new covenant in Christ, of the Spirit of God living in us and dwelling in us and giving us eternal life. Okay? Since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Now, we understand that the Apostle Paul may not have been that fantastic a preacher, or that he was kind of, kind of held back a little bit sometimes. Okay? But the boldness of speech to share with the people that they need to know Jesus Christ, that just following the law and obeying the, the, the Hebraic and the Mosaic law was not enough, that they needed truly to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have such boldness of speech. And the question, I guess, is what about us? I mean, you know, seriously, do we have that boldness to speak? Now, there's a difference between bold and being brutal, okay? There was another word I wanted, but I can't think of the other word for brutal, okay? Being bold and just being ridiculous. Boldness doesn't frighten people away. Brutality will. And so when we share the gospel, we need to be bold about it because we have this hope that Moses had. And we should be able to use great boldness of speech. Not being afraid to talk to people and tell people about Jesus Christ. Moses had a veil over his face so the children could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. And and we're just going to cover this one real quickly here. Their minds were blinded for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Because, and and I've never noticed that until this morning, the Old Testament, the reading of the Old Testament. And what he's talking about there, of course, is the scriptures that he had before the time of Christ. And he's talking probably specifically about the law, the Old Testament, okay, that God made with them. Because the veil is taken away in Christ, okay. So if the veil is taken away in Christ, then those in Christ still have the veil. Not in Christ still have the veil, right? If the veil is taken away in Christ, those not in Christ still have the veil. So they can't see and they can understand. You know who's doing this? It's Satan. Satan's doing everything he can to confuse and to, um, and to uh, blind the people of this world. And he's doing a pretty good job. A lot of people are confused. A lot of people are blinded. And, and we don't understand it. We don't get it because we see the scriptures and we see the truth. And yet they're completely blinded. They're blinded to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They're blinded to the fact that there is one God and that, uh, that he has one Son, Jesus Christ. And that that son, Jesus, died on the cross and rose from the grave. They're blinded from th- about that. They're also blinded about what sin is. See, Christians receive the Spirit of God, and, and the Spirit of God convicts us of sin and righteousness. They don't have the Spirit of God to convict them of sin and righteousness. Maybe the Spirit of God will convict them of sin. But we have to have boldness of speech to see that happen. Their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is lifted in Christ, taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So you see that then we understand, we believe, we trust. Nevertheless, let's see. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Here's the final verse. But we all, with unveiled face, we all. Now, he's not just talking about himself. 
not just talking about those who worked with him, the other disciples, the other missionaries that traveled with him. He's not just talking about those Christians in Corinth. He's talking about every Christian ever to live. Every Christian ever to live at that time, since that time, now, and that ever will live. We all, with unveiled face, we don't have to hide our face. God doesn't have to hide his face from us. We all, with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. You know when we will not behold the mirror, uh, the glory of the Lord in a mirror? When we get there. When we walk in his presence there in heaven. But here we behold his face as in a mirror. And we behold, behold the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. And listen, we all are what? What's happening to us? What's happening to us as we behold the face of Jesus and the glory of God? We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And so there's the other question. Are we being transformed? Are we being changed? Okay. I look at um, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Where the Apostle Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then I move over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. So if you remember 6, 7, and 8, Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, the Apostle Paul was talking about the struggle that he had with sin, okay? Which is good because guess what? It proves to us that the law doesn't keep him from sinning. Okay, but after Christ, guess what? After Christ, the Spirit of God can keep him from sinning. In Romans chapter 8, um, Romans chapter 8, 29. For him he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That was his purpose, that we would then become more and more and more like the son, like Jesus Christ. And so the question is, are we? We're being transformed. Are we changing? See, I've noticed that in my life, the times when God works the most on me and in me is when I put forth the most effort to let him. I know that sounds like a little bit of an oxymoron. But if I'm beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, I have a whole lot more chance of him transforming me. If I put myself on this altar, okay, as a living sacrifice, I have a whole lot more chance of him transforming me and conforming me into his image than I do if I back off and step off. And so, how do, we, how do we do that? Well, quite simply, this. You know? I mean, spend time in the Word. And some people will read the Word just so they can prove that it's wrong or hoping that they can prove that it's wrong. And most of the time what happens, they read the Word and they find out that it's right. Okay? But that's not why we read it. We read it not just to learn facts and to understand things. We read it so that God will use it to transform us into the image of his son. And the the thing is, if we're not and he's not, then we double better check. We better double check to find out which covenant we're under. Are we still under the covenant of law 
or are we under the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ? Are we under the old covenant or are we under the new covenant? Because if we don't love his word and if we aren't being transformed and if we aren't convicted of sin, then it's possible. There's a real good reason for that. And it's because the spirit of God hasn't begun to dwell in us. And so we have two challenges. Are we being uh, bold witnesses and are we being transformed? And so we're going to have a hymn of decision today, a time where we can spend a little bit of time just before God in prayer. We're going to have a hymn. I'm going to allow you to stand and allow you just to consider what God is, how God's working in your heart. Are you being changed? Are you being conformed to God? Are you being transformed in the image of his son? Now, I'll be down at the front ready to receive anybody that, that's ready to receive Christ, ready to be there if you have a prayer need that you want to share with me. And so before we do, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the glorious glory of the new covenant. I thank you for the fact that it's never going to be set aside, that it's an eternal covenant through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who is eternal in the heavens. Father, I thank you for the good news of that gospel, that if we simply will trust in your son, that we'll never be condemned, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Father, we thank you. And Father, if there's any that need to make any decisions today, Father, I pray that you will convict them of sin and of righteousness and that those decisions will be made. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.